my heart has ached and bled for the tears I've shed. He was all dressed up, but no place to go. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Men have been wearing a suit that is very similar to what you still see men wearing since at least the 1800s, at least. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little swatches of audio we find all over the world. Um, let me find a piece of fabric so you can hear it. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. The only things that have changed are sometimes you want it a little bit longer, sometimes you want it a little bit looser, sometimes the vent is a little bit shorter. But if you look at it, it's still a suit. It's still essentially the same thing. So I think it's just very interesting um, how it's stood the test of time. When you put on a suit, blazer, pants, vest optional, you step into a role. A suit looks official and commanding with clean lines that emphasize broad, powerful shoulders, whether you have them or not. Hello, shoulder pads. A garment like that is much more than the sum of its parts. It's an image, an impression, an ID badge. It may be finely stitched wool or a hastily made knockoff, but when you put it on, people see you differently, including yourself. Today on ReSound, whatever suits you. My mother always said, when you find something that fits, buy two. That's because finding well-fitting clothes off the rack is a challenge for anyone who doesn't fit into a standard size, which is most of us. And by challenging, I mean time-consuming, frustrating, and at times, achingly depressing. Mary Going knew this firsthand. Unhappy with the options for gay women like herself and trans men, she set out to start a new business. This is the story, scene by scene, of how she accomplished her ambitious goals and the lives she changed along the way. Here's reporter Luke Malone. Malden, South Carolina, August 28th. 1972, the first day of school. Mary Going was, by her own description, a rugged six-year-old. Digging for worms, playing the red clay in the creek, she said she felt like Joe Cartwright from Bonanza. And that's how she wanted to look, too. Strong, with a swagger, and a big chunky belt slung around her little waist. Mary said her mum didn't have a problem with it at home, but at school, well, that was a different story. I have this very vivid memory of the first day of first grade when I had dressed in a cowboy outfit. You know, my mother wouldn't actually let me have a cowboy outfit, but I had a pair of pants and a shirt that I, you know, had adopted as my cowboy outfit. And I was wearing that, and I went to her and told her, you know, I'm ready. And when she saw me, she was like, you cannot wear that to school. And I'm like... But it's the first day. Like, I have to show them who I am. This is so important to me. You know, being the first day of first grade, you're, like, establishing this is who I am. And I wanted to establish, like, I'm a cowboy. And my mom was like, no way. Now, I am a kid 
who follows the rules. I never got in trouble. But on this day, I fought her tooth and nail. I screamed and cried. And by the time we got to the school and I was dressed in this gross, yellow, frilly dress, I was screaming, hanging onto the edge of the doorway, begging her not to make me wear that to school, not to make me go into that classroom and let people see me in that dress. And I remember sitting in that classroom, knowing that people could see me, not worrying that they saw me crying, but worrying that they saw me in this stupid dress. Oakland, California, July 26th, 2008. The wedding. Mary and her wife, Martha Reinberg, got married after an epic five-year engagement. They didn't want to wait that long. But for Mary, there was always this thing standing in the way. I didn't know what I would wear to our wedding. And so I kept putting it off. And I know that sounds silly, but it's the truth. I kept putting it off because I couldn't figure out what I was going to wear. For most of Mary's adult life, there was really only one thing she felt comfortable wearing. Here's Martha. So Mary had this uniform that she would wear every day. She had a couple pair of khaki pants, a dozen blue t-shirts, and then she had this dark brown North Face zip-up. And that combination just can't go wrong. And you can wear it if you work at a nonprofit. You can wear it if you work at a tech startup. You can wear it at the grocery store. You can wear it at your parent-teacher conference. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing you can't wear that to except your own wedding. So when it came down to it, Mary saying, you know, I'm going to wear my khakis and my North Face. I was like, not if you're going to marry me, you're not. Like, you're going to dress up. But dress up in what exactly? Women's suits weren't Mary's thing. And she couldn't find a men's suit that would fit her body. They were too big or tight in some places and loose in others. And most of the time, the store clerks didn't know how to handle a woman in the men's department. It was Martha's idea that Mary go and get a custom suit made. But Mary was reluctant. It was going to cost $1,800, which was more than their rent. I didn't want to spend the money. A custom suit just felt like, no way, no way. But she kind of insisted that I go talk to a tailor. And so when, when I did, it was actually the best shopping experience I'd ever had up to that point. The guy was amazing. You know, they treated me not like they were tolerating me, not like it was okay with them that I was buying a suit, but rather like I was absolutely normal. Like there was nothing out of the ordinary about my being there. And I finally put that thing on. It was like, wow, in this outfit that actually fits me, that fits my aesthetic as well, I look amazing. I'm ready for my wedding now. You know, the day of our wedding when I got to get married, yeah, I wasn't distracted by hating my clothes or feeling like I looked weird or bad or short or swallowed whole, which is what I usually felt like I looked like. I got to be me. And I also thought, I have to do this for other people. Like, I have to do this for other people. It's, I can't keep this to myself. It's too good. And so I wanted to start a company that allowed this to happen for people. Mountain View, California, October 30th, 2015. The Pitch. My name is Mary Going, and I am the founder of St. Herodin. We make men's clothes for women. Why? Because there's the men's department... And there's the women's department, and nothing in between, except 
$8 billion. Mary strides back and forth across the stage. She's wearing a blue plaid suit, pale blue shirt and broad floral tie. Her hair is short and graying, with a hint of pompadour. She's speaking to an audience of 400 investors. Mary was in one of those startup programs where you spend a couple of months preparing your pitch, getting coaching, and it all leads up to Demo Day, where you try to convince a room full of rich people to give you money. That figure she mentioned, $8 billion, it's how big she thinks this market could be. Mary makes her case. St. Herodin is capturing this market. We started with a Kickstarter campaign, 150% of goal, and then we worked with Brooks Brothers and created a men's suit to fit women's bodies. I look awesome, right? So we took this suit on the road, pop-up tour, 15 cities, $360,000. Mary says that during the pop-up, people waited online for hours to be fitted. Long lines of butch women in bookstores, LGBT centres, and basements that smelt like Subway sandwiches. Some even cried when they tried on her clothes, amazed that they fit them. Women from across the country and as far as Malaysia wrote into Mary, excited, saying that they'd lived for so long not being able to dress how they wanted, and were so grateful that someone was finally making clothes for them. And the response made Mary's niche idea of a clothing company for butch women and trans guys start to feel really big. She tells the investors that people want more than just suits. Our customers said, can you make all our clothes? Can you make pants and shirts and sweaters and underwear and overcoats? And we say yes, because this is our scalable market opportunity. So if you want a piece of $8 billion, suit up and come talk to me. Oakland, California, February 6th, 2016. The fitting. Oh my God. Every time we release a product, uh-huh. we sell the hell out of it. I know, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. Yeah. And so I'm very, very pleased with how all of this is going. And I'm, Mary's I'm running through fabric swatches with her production director, Lila Fox. After the pop-up tour, Mary ended up raising $150,000. With that money... Mary and Martha started selling suits and accessories online. They were working with a VP from Brooks Brothers. And every week, they were sending orders out to Houston, Gainesville, Sydney, Sao Paulo. Then, last fall, Mary decided to open a store in downtown Oakland. She wanted to give her customers the full experience, a place where they could be fitted for a suit in person. The St. Harridan store is large and airy with pale floorboards and super-high ceilings. A couple walks in, Sarah Crowder and her fiancé, Elizabeth Jacobson. They flew here from Seattle just to get Sarah fitted for her wedding suit. The store clerk, a woman named Brooklyn, takes out a tape measure. All right, so we'll do a couple measurements. So we'll start with chest, neck, we'll do sleeve, and then we'll do your seat as well. How tall are you? Five, three and a half. So Sarah's not tall. She's broad and solid and likes to wear her clothes loose. Like Mary, she doesn't want women's suits with their cinch waists and stitching that accentuates cleavage. But her fiancé, Elizabeth, says this makes her shopping options kind of limited. We looked at kind of the place she's always looked before um, and has even, we've gone together to get suits for other occasions. Um, And where is that? Men's warehouse, typically. 
I mean, you've run into a couple really good salespeople who do their best to make it comfortable, but it's still like so out of the norm, right? And it's sort of like, get it done, get out of there. And I even had one really good tailor, but you can only do so much with what you have to work with, right? You've got a framework that you can only change so much. The store clerk, Brooklyn, pulls out a variety of jackets for Sarah to try on. St. Harridan suits are modelled off male patterns and are designed to hide breasts and hips. Sarah settles on a long fit in dark grey charcoal. She slips it on and walks over to the mirror. I think it's the first time that I've worn something that actually fits me. Sarah looks back at Elizabeth. She's smiling, a little teary. She walks and the suit moves with her. Nothing is bunching or catching. She looks really good. Another customer walks into the store to pick up her finished wedding suit. She tries it on one last time and comes back out with a big smile and her hands raised in the air, like a gymnast dismounting after a successful bar routine. All right, let's get married. I'm ready. She was ready on our first date. Malden, South Carolina, April 6th, 1967. The adoption. That was my first Mother's Day, and was I proud to be a mother. Dot Burton points at a picture of her and her daughter that hangs next to the TV. Dot is Mary's mum, the one who wrestled her into the yellow dress 44 years ago. Dot is 79 now. She has Parkinson's, so her speech is a little hard to understand. She's wearing corduroy overalls, neat and smart, like she's heading to church, which she does every Sunday. Dot has piles of books and papers all around her, and little towers of photo albums. She flips through a thick, heavy brown one and stops at a photo of her wedding day. In it, she has long hair, right down to her waist. The day they called me and told me that I had a little girl if I wanted it, I was getting my hair cut so I could, wouldn't have to worry with my hair and take care of my baby. The adoption agency had tried calling the house and tracked her down at the beauty parlour. Dot was actually in the chair in the middle of the cut when they gave her the good news. They called me at the beauty parlor and says, you have a little girl, do you want her? I said, do I want her? Yes. The next day, Dot drove the 100 miles south to Columbia to meet her three-month-old daughter. She brought Mary home that afternoon. Dot was 33, old for new mum in that time and place. Her husband was a drinker and abusive. And five years after Mary's arrival, he was gone. Dot was a single mum after that. She supported Mary and her little sister Laura, adopted three years later, on her nurse's salary. But looking through the photo album, you don't see how rough it was. They look happy. There they are at Christmas. What are those dolls? Raggedy Ann and Andy. Mary and her sister Laura are standing by the fireplace clutching homemade Raggedy Ann and Andy dolls. They called Mary Sissy back then. And guess who scored Andy? Sissy wanted Andy and Laura wanted Raggedy Ann. There they are. That was an Easter outfit. Little bonnets. That's what all the babies wore back then. She was quite a little girl. Oakland, California, February 5th, 2016. The check. Hey. I'm good. Can I please cash this? We're at the bank a couple of blocks down from the store. Mary's talking to the bank teller, who's sitting behind the glass. So I want 2000 to go into the personal account, and then the rest to go in the business, and I actually have all this to go in the business as well. 
um, check the funds for this customer's account if there's not enough for the capacity. Dang, she has the same problem I do. What just what just happened? Uh, the customer doesn't have enough money in her account to cash the check, so it's basically her her check is bouncing. <laughs> this is a bigger deal than it might sound. The reason Mary, a CEO, is here cashing the check in the first place, is that she's drastically low on funds herself. And it just so happens that my rent check is going to bounce. Is this like a normal thing recently that you need to like cash a check urgently to make sure that your rent check doesn't bounce? Uh, yeah, I mean, Tahirin hasn't been paying us for a while. Business has been rocky. The sales have been good, but they're not enough to cover expenses. It's not cheap to produce suits and clothes at this small scale. And Mary hasn't been able to break even. She stopped taking a salary. She's maxed out her personal credit cards, and she and Martha have been struggling to make the rent on their apartment. But Mary's not surprised her client bounced the check today. This happens a lot. Sure, people come to our store all the time and to buy a suit, which is a very expensive item. They're like, can you can you put some of it on this card and some of it on this card? And and um, very often their card is declined at the register and they have to call and transfer funds and stuff. Mary's sympathetic. She knows that the people she's selling to don't always have a lot of money. She points out that women earn less and speaks from experience when she says that the job market can be tough for butch women. And it's even worse for trans guys. They're outsiders. And outsiders aren't usually rich. Malden, South Carolina, January 19th, 1985. The fight. Mary's 18 and she's living at home. Her mum, Dot, is still expecting her to become a Southern Belle. Her husband, dresses, big hair, big smile. Which, if you knew Mary, you'd know was never going to happen. But on this night, she decided her mum needed to know that too. And so when Dot got home from work, Mary was in the living room. And she wasn't alone. I actually took Jan with me, and, and, you know, in retrospect, like, that was kind of a chicken move, but, you know, I was, like, 18 years old. Jan was Mary's first girlfriend. She's two years older than Mary, which felt pretty cool. They met at the Chinese restaurant where Mary worked. Jan's tall, and back then, with her shag haircut, she had this Joan Jett vibe about her. Jan remembers how it all went down. She talked to her mother. She said, um... If I remember correctly, she said, Mom, Jan and I are together, we're a couple, and I'm gay. I said, Mom, or Mama, I would never call her Mom, Mama, Jan and I are more than friends. And she must have known at some level that that was the case, because she didn't say, what are you talking about? She said, try on this jacket. I got you this jacket. It's members only. Try on this jacket. And I'm like, Mom, are you listening? She's like... Try on this jacket, try on this jacket. It was this is bizarre, like, this cannot be happening moment for her, where she was like, try on this frigging members-only jacket, you know? <laughs> After a little bit of back and forth, she looked at me and she said, could you leave and let me speak with my daughter? And I said, I promised Mary that I wouldn't leave her side unless she wanted me to. And I looked at Mary and Mary said, it's okay, just step outside for a minute. And as I started to go outside, her mother ran to the kitchen behind me and got a gun. That's right, a gun. Do you think the gun was loaded? Um, yeah, it was loaded. It was sitting there because that's the protection that we had for the house, you know. So, yeah, it was loaded. 
she went and got the gun. Actually, it was a shotgun, but a long, a long gun, you know, and uh, told me she would kill me before she would let me live my life like this. And she grabbed Mary, the gun, like Mary with the gun, and the door, and was trying to lock me out of the door. And I saw that I was all of a sudden in this alternate reality where someone's holding a gun and holding her hostage, and I just, I, being younger, stupider, whatever you want to call it, ripped the door open, grabbed Mary by the arm, pulled her out, and not even thinking the first words out of my mouth were, leave her alone, you stupid bitch. <laughs> Which I'm sure endeared me to her greatly. <laughs> but um, she was about to point the gun at me when Mary stood between us, and she said, don't. I finally got away, and I ran, and we got in the car, drove off. I mean, I was crying, you know, like <laughs> like breathing, crying, where you can't breathe and cry. It was horrible. It was horrible. It was horrible. I have never had hate in my heart for anybody in my life until that very night that time. And I, I, it was terrible. I cried until I didn't have any tears to cry. Because I always wanted my, my little sissy to be a prim and proper little lady. Mary and her mum have never spoken about that night. Dot has regrets about it, though, and there are a few things she would do differently, given the chance. I wouldn't have, wouldn't have said, uh, I'd rather see her dead or I wouldn't have said I, if I could kill you. Does this make you upset to talk about? Mm-hmm. I was just hurt and almost ashamed because back then they kept everything like that in the closet. You don't, uh, you don't talk about it. Dot drove around every night for the next two months, looking for Mary. But after that night, Mary was done. She moved in with Jan and was never coming back home. What was it like to not have her there after that? Very, very lonely. Augusta, Maine, April 23rd, 1998. The meet-cute. After Mary left home, she got work as a phlebotomist then a bartender and a lifeguard. She went to college, bounced around the country, and eventually ended up in Maine, where she fell in love with Martha. It all started with a bunch of bumper stickers. Mary was at the shop and save one night and saw a car that had a Harley Davidson sticker, a Smith College sticker, and a rainbow flag on the back. And I was walking through the parking lot and there were these three bumper stickers on this car. And I had I'm not from New England, so I didn't have a really strong sense of Smith. I thought it was like Barbara Bush, pearl-wearing, very conservative, Republican kind of women who were wealthy. And so the combination of that with the Harley-Davidson sticker was all by itself pretty interesting. And then on top of that, the rainbow flag. And I was like, I have to know this person. And you have to know that like 2,000 people live in this city where we were, so... You know, I mean, there's not that many interesting people. I want to know this one for sure. And so I left her the note on her car because I just kind of had to. And when I came out, there was a postcard on my my windshield, and it read, 
Interesting combination of bumper stickers. Could they all be yours? Curiosity is powerful. And then she left a work number and a home number. I drove home and unloaded my groceries and was talking to my cat uh, and was uh, just like kind of just totally tickled by this by this message on my car. And um, I decided to call. You know, I wanted to know one more thing about this person. Um, you know, do they work at Jordan Meatpacking Plant or what? And so I, I called and sure enough, a person answered and said, Mary Going. So I got the call. I always answered the phone with my name. And, um, and then she hung up on me. I hung up because <laughs> that's not what I was expecting. I was expecting an answering service or, you know, it was after six o'clock. I called a work number. I assumed I would get a voicemail. And then my phone rang. I answered the phone and the voice said, this number just called me. And I had this moment of, it was like a split screen in my mind. Like I knew that I could hang up and it would be over, it would be done. Or I could step toward the other side of the screen, which was totally unclear to me, but obviously interesting. And so I said, oh, hi, I'm the blue sub from the Shop and Save parking lot. <laughs> and she said, oh, hi. Mary and Martha started dating. It was Martha's first relationship with a woman. They moved in together and bought a new cat. Then they moved across the country to California, made new friends, got new jobs, adopted their two kids and got married. For Mary, it's a life far removed from the one expected of her growing up in South Carolina. Dot was at Mary and Martha's wedding. There's this picture of them from that day. Dot made it her Facebook photo. In it, Mary and her mum are hugging and smiling. Dot in a yellow lace dress, and Mary in her tailored wedding suit. They now talk on the phone at least once a week. Dot brags to her friends, telling them what a successful businesswoman Mary is. And Mary feels like, for the first time in her life, her mum's proud of her. Oakland, California, March 21st, 2016. The runway. St. Harridan has been on precarious footing for a while. There are moments when lots of orders are coming in, and Mary's putting money in the bank. But then one small thing goes wrong, and it costs a bunch of money to fix, and they're back on the brink. Last week, Mary discovered one of those things. Some of her employees have been putting the wrong code in the ordering system. And it's a system that I've had in place for a while now, and so many people don't follow it. It's like this succession of people who don't follow my fucking system, you know? I went through every order and found... Four of these kinds of mistakes. That's two suits that were delayed and two that were the wrong size and had to be sent back. When this happens, Mary eats the costs, and it's possible that customers won't get their suits in time for their weddings. And a mistake like this, four suits, it may seem small, but it can completely devour Mary's profit margin, which is a problem when making payroll is already a struggle. And these mistakes have been happening a lot recently. It's a bit of a catch-22. Mary wants to spend more time in the store, making sure these mistakes don't happen, but she also has to go out and raise money. She needs a cushion so that these mistakes aren't so potentially devastating. If you have enough of a runway, you can make mistakes and correct them and have a learning curve and and learn, right? That's what a runway is for. So yeah, I do worry that our learning curve 
is going to be higher than or longer than our runway of cash. It's just a question of like, what am I supposed to be spending my time on every day? And I took a big step back to raise money. Maybe I should have taken a more mini step back. Factoring in their current sales, St. Harridan is burning about $10,000 a month. With $20,000 in the business account, that's two months until they have zero in the bank. Two months until they have to close down. The racks of dress shirts, the suits, the silk ties and pocket squares, the haven of a store that's just for butch women and trans men, gone. And it's making Mary doubt herself. A person who's in my position always has to look and say, what can we fix? What can we fix? Like, that's how I think. And if I have read all the books and I have fixed all the processes, whatever, you know, the long list is, at this point, we're into our fourth year. We've done three whole years. We're into number four. I feel like we've plateaued and I am the one who's standing there. So what can I fix is my mantra, and it seems like it's me. Washington, D.C., May 16th, 2016. The Jobs Act. Mary has a plan. She hasn't had much luck with most VCs, but she has had friends and customers ask if they can invest a couple of thousand in the company. Because of SEC regulations, these people haven't been able to put in any money. They're not accredited investors. But this week, the rules were relaxed, and all those people who want to invest in Mary's company can. It's called equity crowdfunding. It's not a straight shoot, and Mary has a bunch of hoops she needs to jump through. But she figures she might have more luck raising money from a lot of people who believe in her mission, versus convincing a handful of straight investor guys that a clothing company tailored towards butch women and trans men is a strong bet. All the wealth in our country is concentrated really in white, straight men. And, and I'm obviously making an overgeneralization there, but it is at the aggregate true. And they invest in people they understand and they understand themselves better than anybody else. So they invest in people who look like them, act like them, be like them, smell like them. Then, you know, black women don't get invested in, black men don't get invested in white women, especially not people who are gender non-conforming. I feel like I have just haven't asked the right people yet. It's going to take a couple of months for it all to shake loose. But Mary's optimistic. She's hired a bunch of new employees, a social media manager, marketing and PR people. She's throwing everything she can at it. Mary believes this is the opportunity she needs to turn the business around. And if it's not, well, she has her answer. If the securities and exchange laws are set up in such a way that we really can ask our people, do you want this business to continue? And they answer no. I think that's a pretty good no. That's a pretty good indicator that it isn't going to fly. Mary has spent much of her life trying to be comfortable in her own skin. And a lot of that has had to do with what she wears. She's figured out what works for her and she wants to give that to other people. She told me she looks at St. Harridan as a sort of sculpture. It's not something that emerges fully formed. It's constructed, one piece at a time. All Mary wants is to keep building what she started, because even with the doubts and the ups and downs, she's learned that she feels most comfortable when she's running her company. It fits her better than anything else. 
The Runway was produced by Luke Malone for Gimlet Media's podcast, Startup, a series about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We spoke with Luke when we featured this story on our website recently. He gave us an update on the status of St. Herodin and also told us about Mary Going's big plans for the future. So she's actually trying to expand at the same time as um, keeping St. Herodin running. And she started a thing called Harridan Township. Um, and Harridan Township is like an umbrella for like a bunch of different brands. Um, and so basically it's a collection of designer labels. Uh, she says it as fluid as your gender. So she has like kind of, you know, traditionally feminine clothes for guys and more butch, butch clothes for women. Her idea, I think, eventually is to basically have like, whether it's a shop, whether it's an online store, whether it's a brick and mortar, I think more online, um, basically that there is no such thing as men's sizing and women's sizing. You just have racks of clothes and they can be um, skirts, they can be suit jackets, they can be whatever, and to really eliminate gender altogether and just pick something that fits your body shape and your preferences versus kind of having like, you know, this is the men's department, this is the women's department. That was Luke Malone with an update about his story, The Runway. For the full behind-the-scenes interview, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. I am letting the thigh crotch area out of these pants. And now I'm just going to use the iron and press it open. The extra beautiful thing about listening to the radio or a podcast is you don't have to suit up at all. You can do it buck naked if you want. We couldn't make it any easier. To peruse more than 2,000 fabulous stories, check out our upcoming public events, enter our competitions, or just say hi, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. And now he has more room in the legs. Coming up after the break, the common blazer. That's right, the jacket we see everywhere on just about everyone brings a new attitude into a California police department. Stay with us. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Each week on ReSound, we listen for the best audio stories from around the world and then design a listening experience around them that will intrigue, inform, and inspire. This week, we were inspired by clothing, suits to be exact, the suits we wear and the impressions we make. The automatic suit. I'm wearing one now. A suit designed to be repeatedly worn, then washed in an automatic washer and tumble dried in an automatic dryer, then worn immediately. With the creases and pleats still in place, but with the wrinkles gone. A suit screams, take me seriously. I'd like to impress you. My shoulders look unnaturally broad. Take a uniform, for instance. Its job is to project a powerful first impression at first glance, exactly the goal of the police-issue blazer. But as 99% Invisibles Delaney Hall and Roman Mars discovered, that was not always the case. In 1968, the police department in Menlo Park, California, hired a new police chief. His name was Victor Sazankas. 
And Chief Sizankis' main goal was to reform the police department's image, which wasn't great at the time. That's our own Delaney Hall. Because this was the 1960s, and even in Menlo Park, a small city with manicured lawns and wide suburban streets, it had been a turbulent decade. There were big student-led anti-war demonstrations at Stanford University, which is right nearby. Joan Baez, the folk singer, created a commune called Struggle Mountain in the foothills above the city. And leaders in the African-American community were organizing protests to demand better treatment and services. The Menlo Park police had clashed with these protesters, sometimes violently. And after years and years of this, the department had a pretty rough reputation. Had a reputation for being a very tough police department, a very aggressive police department, and somewhat of a very uh, anti-race kind of a police department. That's Dominic Peloso. He was hired in 1970 by Chief Sizenkis, the guy who wanted to change this culture. He just, he was one of these type of guys that would come into a room and would just fill in the room, you know, and everybody kind of sits back and says, uh, I think we better listen and go along with this guy. Chief Sizankis had hired Dominic right out of the Jesuit seminary, where Dominic had been studying to be a priest. Sizankis liked hiring officers from non-traditional law enforcement backgrounds and with higher levels of education. It was just one of his strategies for reforming the department. He also let his officers grow their hair out and have beards and mustaches. He changed all the pseudo-military titles to more corporate ones. Sergeants became managers, for example, and lieutenants became directors. Officers in the department had mixed feelings about all these changes, but one was more controversial than the others. For a long time, officers in Menlo Park had worn a variation of the traditional dark blue police uniform. But Chief Sizankis thought that style was too intimidating and aggressive. So the chief came up with something totally different. It was really a nice, kind of a dark green blazer with some black thread in it. Uh, we wore pastel-colored solid shirts with a tie and slacks. Instead of a metal badge, the blazer sported an embroidered patch that sort of looked like a coat of arms. Guns and handcuffs remained hidden under the jacket. All in all, the officers looked kind of like grown-up prep school students, but with guns. They even had pocket protectors with the Menlo Park Police logo on it that would slide into the pocket of their dress shirts. It seems like the, the total effect is he was trying to demilitarize the look and attitude of the department. Yeah, I think that would be a correct uh, statement. Uh, a lot of the guys who join police departments are from the military, and because of the nature of the work, um, it, it can be very militaristic, shall we say, an organization and training and all those kinds of things. And he was trying to calm it down. But Chief Sizankis was also messing with a tradition that would prove extremely hard to change. Because the blue military-style uniform had a history that went back more than 100 years. What we've asked police officers to wear over the years says a lot about what we've expected of them and how we feel about them. It even says a lot about how they feel about themselves. Back in America's colonial days, law enforcement looked really different than it does now. In New England, there were these informal groups, generally known as the Watch, that patrolled neighborhoods looking for crime. No uniforms, no sort of organizational policies that they had to follow. It was basically every able man. Chad Posick teaches in the Department of Criminal Justice and Criminology at Georgia Southern University. If they saw somebody that needed help, a fire, 
crime on the corner. It would just be an informal group that would sort of respond to that. So that was in the North. In Southern communities, leading up to the Civil War, there were roving patrols that were responsible for suppressing slave revolts and tracking down runaway slaves. They worked for large plantation owners. So very much in the South, early policing was tied to uh, slavery, where in the North, it was more of policing crime in these large urban areas. These unofficial patrols were how early law enforcement worked for decades. It wasn't until the 1820s that modern policing began to take shape, thanks to a British statesman named Sir Robert Peel. Before Peel came along, policing in London looked a lot like it did in colonial America, informal and loosely organized. And Peel recognized that there were problems with this model. People not taking it seriously, being drunk on the job, not showing up, falling asleep. And so he, what he wanted to do is create a police department that was based on certain principles. And after years of pushing for reform, Peel succeeded. In 1829, he helped found the London Metropolitan Police, the first modern, full-time, citywide police department. British officers are still known as Bobbies in honor of Robert Bobby Peel. In Ireland, they call them Peelers with a little less affection. Peel required his officers to wear uniforms that would distinguish them from citizens they were meant to serve. But Peel was also sensitive to how British people might perceive this new police force. Yes, that was a huge concern. Because for so many years, the people were ruled by the military in a, in a military state. Peel wanted the new police uniforms to stand apart from the redcoats of the British military. And that's sort of where we get our first blue uniform that was, was very professional looking. Um, and it was actually stood in stark contrast to the red that you saw with the military. Gradually, Peel's ideas and his blue uniform made their way to the United States. By the early 1900s, police departments across the country had adopted aspects of the style and approach pioneered by the London Metropolitan Police. This included a quasi-military structure and the goal of crime prevention. But there were still some problems. Most early police departments in the U.S. allied themselves with the rich and the powerful, like local politicians and business leaders. And you might be thinking, it's still like that now. And you might be right, but it was worse then. Like a new mayor would get elected and then would appoint a hand-picked police chief. Then the police chief would hire their family, their friends, to become the officers of that department. So very political, and, and obviously, if you're the police chief and you sort of work for the mayor, the local politician, you're going to serve their purposes first, and the community maybe secondarily. It was a patronage system. And in most departments, recruits didn't receive any special training. They were just handed a badge and a nightstick and sent out on patrol. Despite the spiffy new uniforms and their newly organized approach, public trust in the police was dismal. So a reform movement begins to grow across America. And then in 1929, President Herbert Hoover convenes a group called the Wickersham Commission, to conduct the first national study of the American criminal justice system. They look at the system from top to bottom. And they basically saw the infiltration of politics into policing as a huge problem. And they said that we need to change up how we do things. The Wickersham report shocked the country by exposing widespread police abuse. 
It described police routinely beating suspects and holding them illegally for lengthy questioning. And you might be thinking, it's still like that now. And you might be right. But it was worse then. The report included some pretty disturbing accounts, like a suspect who was held by the ankles from a third-story window and another who was forced to stand in the morgue with his hands on the body of a murder victim. This report, the Wickersham report, really was sort of this turning point and we need to do something different in policing. And I think that's what led into this professional era. This new professional era, which continued up into the 1960s and 70s, was characterized by an emphasis on policing as a skilled profession. This old educational film called Your Police lays it out. Police departments use modern signs to protect you, such as teletype, photography, two-way radio, expert firearms training as standardized by the FBI National Academy, accident prevention installations and other... Now police were trained to use modern tools and technology. And one of the leading voices for this new method was a guy named August Wolmer. He'd been the first police chief of Berkeley, California, and he helped to write the Wickersham report. Wolmer got his officers to use motorcycles and patrol cars instead of just walking around. That way they could cover bigger areas more efficiently. He was also one of the first chiefs in the U.S. to insist his department use fingerprinting and blood and fiber analysis to help solve crimes. And under his influence, California became a hotbed of police reform from the 1920s through the 1960s, leading, of course, to stuff like Chief Sazankis' blazer uniform experiment in Menlo Park. For a few years, it seemed like Chief Sazankis' reforms might be working. In blazers and ties and pocket protectors, the Menlo Park police definitely looked less intimidating. Here's Dominic Peloso again. He eventually became assistant chief under Sazankis. It wasn't like we slacked off and became, you know, like, oh, mercy and forgiveness and love and peace and all that kind of stuff, you know? Oh, no. But the way we did it and the style that we gave to people, I think, um, made them feel a lot better about us. And he built up a lot of really good rapport uh, with the community. There was even an early study suggesting that altercations between citizens and the police had declined because of the Blazers. The study was later challenged, but when it first came out, word began to spread and a few other departments across the country adopted the Blazer style. But the uniform experiment also drew a line within the department. On one side, there were the guys, like Dominic, who liked what the Blazers stood for. They embraced that Chief Sazankis wanted the department to have a calmer, more professional image. There's a lot of guys who want to do this job, but don't want to go out there and knock heads or shoot people or, you know, whatever like that. Uh, They just want to do the best for the community. And I think with our uniform, people who were applying got more the sense that we really were community-minded, helping people. On the other side were the old-school police officers, who missed the traditional uniform and all that it represented. They enjoy the ego stuff that goes with it. Um, They also enjoy that sense of authority um, that you show, um, the clearness of who they are. With the blazer, it just wasn't always that clear. You know, I'd stop a person, let's say for a violation, and I'd walk up and say, can I see your license, you know? And they'd look at me and say, well, let's see your license. You know, who are you? (laughs) Then you'd point to the little patch and say, well, I'm the police, you know? This is retired Sergeant Van Trask. He worked under Sazankis, and generally he liked the chief's style and approach. But he admits that it caused some complications. You you didn't have that much 
recognition as a cop. So you you kind of you, there's a tendency to get more. Who are you? You know, hey, I you know I'm the police. You know, sure you are. Many officers got so frustrated that they quit. The numbers we've heard on this vary. Van said about half the department left. Dominic thinks it was even higher. I would guess that in his first four years as police chief, we had about a 75% turnover. People just left and went to other departments. But I think they just couldn't take his, his overall thinking, his out-of-the-box thinking, his philosophy and stuff. So they all just, just abandoned. And eventually, Sazankas left too, to take over as the chief of a police department in Stamford, Connecticut. You know, there's some talk that uh, he was actually uh, kind of encouraged um, to leave. And not long after he left, the department switched back to the traditional uniform style. Sazankas passed away in 1980. The year that Sazankas joined the Menlo Park Police Department, 1968, represented an important turning point for law enforcement in the U.S. The community policing approach championed by Sazankas would continue to gain traction through the 80s and 90s as departments across the country tried to build better, less combative relationships with their local communities. But there had always been a tension between the more community-oriented side of policing and the more military side, and that was about to intensify. In recent years, crime in this country has grown nine times as fast as population. At the current rate, the crimes of violence in America will double by 1972. We cannot accept that kind of future for America. In 1968, Richard Nixon ran for president on a promise of law and order. He tapped into all the paranoia and unease that had grown during the turmoil of the 1960s. His campaign ads were full of these scary images of urban unrest and rioting. And they ended with his slogan written across the screen. Vote like your whole world depended on it. I pledge to you, the wave of crime is not going to be the wave of the future in America. Shortly after taking office, Nixon vowed to fight the war on crime, which had been started by his predecessor, Lyndon Johnson. He also declared a war on drugs. Again, criminal justice professor Chad Posick. One, I think the language is very important, right? You don't have, say, drug prevention or crime prevention. It's, it's the war, war on drugs, the war on crime. So you do see an escalation during this time on how crime is responded to. And it's responded to like they're responding to war. War, of course, requires specialized equipment. And around this same time, the government established the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, a now-defunct federal agency that gave lots of money to local police departments so they could buy newfangled crime-fighting tools. You see this uptick in support for uh, all sorts of policing, but especially riot gear and SWAT teams and armored vehicles and, and, and weapons and bulletproof vests and those types of things. Even small rural departments were getting their hands on stuff like helicopters and serious crowd control gear like shields and helmets. And new paramilitary divisions of the police, like SWAT teams, began using this gear. Some exchanged the traditional blue uniform for camouflage outfits, known as the battle dress uniform. They began to look more military. As this kind of equipment and style spread, so did more militarized policing tactics. Conducting raids, um, crackdowns, 
and harshly enforcing laws. And they're behind the mask that they wear in riot gear or the big, huge vest that they wear in the SWAT team. This trend continued to the 80s and 90s in lots of police departments across the country. It accelerated in many places after 9-11 as police departments became closer with federal law enforcement agencies and started thinking of themselves as part of the first line of defense in a new war, the War on Terror. New federal programs emerged that sent surplus military equipment from Iraq and Afghanistan to local police departments across the country. Which brings us to today. Because the police just arrested someone. They're basically confronting the police, yelling at them over this arrest. Back up, please! Across the country, there have been highly publicized protests against police shootings of unarmed black men, women, and even children. And these protests have sparked bigger conversations about police violence and also how our police look. For several nights this week, this was Ferguson, Missouri. Tanks, combat gear, assault rifles. It looked like a military operation. You must disperse immediately. And that's because police departments... The current mistrust of police seems to mirror what was going on in Menlo Park back in 1968, pre-Blazer, but on a more dramatic scale. Back in the 1960s, it was big conversations about the role of police in the community that led Chief Sizankas to make changes to the Menlo Park uniform. Today, at least so far, no departments have taken steps that drastic. But in Minneapolis, they're taking a small step in that general direction. Minneapolis SWAT teens will soon unveil a new look to make them appear less intimidating. In February of 2016, the Minneapolis Police Department changed the color of their SWAT uniforms from a military green to a more traditional navy blue. This happened about four months after the city saw widespread protests after the police shot and killed an unarmed black man named Jamar Clark. The Minneapolis Police Department declined to talk with us about the uniform change, but they've made it clear in other interviews that this color change is about public perception and rebranding. We are police. We are not military. We don't train with the military. We're not associated with the military. We're the Minneapolis Police Department, and uh, we want to be reflective of our own community and our own image. What's not totally clear is if the color of the uniform actually matters. I mean, they can wear pink, but if they're toting guns and rubber bullets and mace um, and tasers and everything else. This is Candace Montgomery. She's an activist with Black Lives Matter, and she's taken part in protests in Minneapolis against the police. A color is not going to change that dynamic. An entire overhaul of the policing system is going to change that dynamic in people's responses. Of course, the problems police are facing today can't be solved by uniform change alone. But a change in uniform can be an important symbol, a way for police departments to signal to their communities that they want to have a better relationship. In the case of Chief Sizankas in Menlo Park, the uniform experiment did help lead to bigger changes. Requiring officers to wear blazers meant a certain kind of officer was drawn to the police department, the kind who was willing to get on board with the more significant reforms that Sizankas wanted to make. And even though the department eventually abandoned the blazers, many of the other changes stuck. Here's former Menlo Park Assistant Chief Dominic Peloso again. 
Vic was definitely ahead of his time. And, you know, as with most people who are ahead of their time, uh, you, you don't have a crowd of people that all kind of stand up and cheer for you. But it would be very interesting because within, I'd say, 10 or 15 years, almost every police department in our area, even though they didn't change the uniform or the titles or the organizational chart, were taking on that real big kind of community policing uh, thing. They went ahead and did it because that was the t signs of the times. The Blazer Experiment was produced by Delaney Hall and Roman Mars for the podcast 99% Invisible. To find many more stories by these ReSound alums, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.